0: Welcome to the Jesus Collective Podcast. This is where we explore third-way leadership in a polarized world, and we ask what it means to keep Jesus at the center through it all. We hope you'll find the conversation meaningful and that it equips you in your context with fresh approaches to facing some of the most challenging leadership and ministry questions of our day. And hey, if you're new to Jesus Collective, welcome! We are a relational network of churches and ministry leaders with a vision to unite equip and amplify a movement that is all about Jesus. You can look us up on social media or head to our website at jesuscollective.com to learn more, find out what it means to get involved, all that good stuff. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's get on with the podcast.
1: So we are excited about today's podcast and we are, um, we're leaning into this conversation really around... What does it mean to lead in Jesus-centered ways? What are some ways that some of the people who are part of Jesus Collective, who are really trying to put Jesus at the center, what are some of the ways that in this moment, this cultural moment, they are seeking to kind of rethink the church? Uh, COVID has exposed (laughs) a lot of things, but it's also exposed opportunities for us to re-examine some of the, what we've considered fundamentals of church, but to look at them with fresh eyes. And today we're having a compelling uh, conversation over the, really the question of how do we use and share power in leadership? And is there a Jesus-centered way that informs how we hold power uh, in leadership? And uh, I'm excited about who we're going to be chatting with today. But a little bit about me. My name is John Hand. I'm the leadership formation pastor here at Jesus Collective. And I um, have the opportunity and the privilege to help oversee our kind of leadership development and equipping and leadership, what we call formation reforming the heart and the hands and the head uh, of, of leaders in this movement. And um, we are heading towards unite. Uh, We have an exciting uh, conference, uh, more like a family reunion where we're meeting new friends and um, reacquainting ourselves physically with each other. This will be like our first physical in-person event uh, COVID, providing. But right now, the borders are open. There's COVID protocols in place, and uh, we are we are welcoming people to register and to come be a part of Unite. You can go to JesusCollective.com backslash Unite to to see the lineup of. Uh, people who will be presenting to see the level and the kinds of conversations that we'll be having. And really what we're gonna do is we're gonna take a Jesus-centered gospel. So what is a Jesus-centered gospel? And then in our cultural moment, how does it apply to power and justice? How does it apply to the polarization of our moment? Uh, What's the relevance of Jesus in a post-Christian a secular age. How is Jesus relevant in a secular age? And then we're going to look at identity because identity is one of the, say the greatest aches of our moment. And we believe that the, this snapshot of these implications of the Jesus centered gospel, we believe that they are important and vital conversations that we need to be having as followers of Jesus, uh, as we're leading forward his church and his kingdom, so that's what unite is uh, brewing uh, for us. So please register, please join us. We want to see you there. So we are going to dive into this conversation. Uh, so our last podcast we had was on making peace in a polarized church and world. And this uh, today we are chatting with Heather Thomas and Johnny Morris, our friends. They're a uh, uh, their church Missio day in salt lake city utah is a partner church in jesus collective and so this is this practitioner series we're talking to practitioners here who are really trying to integrate theology and organizational vision these are two things that we tend to not like couple (laughs) Uh, we tend to do theology we tend to do organizational vision Mission, etc. Now we're trying to ask questions. What does it mean to put Jesus at the center? How does our theology inform how we actually structure? And here's one example today of how theology informs putting Jesus at the center, informs power and leadership and church structure and organization. So I am excited for this combo. So, Heather and Johnny, can I just say welcome to you, Heather Thomas and Johnny Morrison. Good to see you.
2: Thanks. Yeah, thanks, John. Well,
1: hey, let's kick it off and just briefly introduce yourselves. Uh, tell us kind of your roles at the church and a little backstory on Missio Day.
3: Yeah, my name is Heather, as has have been introduced. And I am with Johnny. We co-lead Missio Together. And I moved here in 2014 to Salt Lake City. I'm originally from England, but moved to... Salt Lake City um, in 2014, the church that I had sent um, the founding pastor to Salt Lake came from Portland in Oregon, and I was at that sending church, and so I joined the church here in 2014, and it had been around for about four years, and so I've been here as an associate pastor, and now I was co-lead with Johnny um, eight years now here in Salt Lake City, so um, yeah, it's been good and challenging. Great.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we might hear more about uh, that huh <laughs> maybe yeah yeah uh,
2: and then i came a year later to missio i had planted a church in salt lake city that then merged with the like church as it is today in 2015 joined the staff in yeah 2015 alongside of heather as like an associate pastor or like i think we our titles were community pastor underneath a singular lead And then uh, I've been there ever since. Yeah, that's great. So uh, before
1: we get into kind of the story, um, tell us a little bit in terms of Missio, Missio Day, who are you reaching? If you were to say, uh, obviously, the church is for everybody, but our church tends to be, say, the most impactful or effective with with maybe a certain kind of person, or demographic in your community. So give us some backstory. What what makes Missio Day unique in your community?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we are 12 years old to a 12-year-old church plant that still qualifies as a church plant. Uh, and the demographic in which we tend to reach the most is really young, uh, maybe post-religious, uh, like millennial and Gen Z. Like That's like 80% of our community is somewhere between under 35 to like 20 um so we're really young we have very little money uh and a lot of uh, deconstruction and frustration about religion and uh theology and faith and that's kind of always been true of us at some level we i always i think our tradition in some ways comes from like a bit of the emerging church world, and so we've always drawn folks who were deconstructing, folks who were looking for a different iteration of faith, which has led to you know lots of strange issues, but has also created a space that's tended to be pretty safe for people who are working through difficult questions, at least at some level.
1: And it's interesting, you guys are kind of like like a child of the emerging church movement, kind of right? Like you were you were planted out of Missio Day in Portland, I think, where Rick McKinley's the pastor. Is that right?
2: a mago day in portland
1: yeah yeah i'm sorry Amago day yes yeah so like tell us a little bit like as you have planted then your church what's been the journey like the leadership journey when you when you first planted you're 12 years old by the way when does a church stop calling itself a church plant any theories on that just as a side note
2: well, we got kicked out of our church planning network at 10. So I think they were trying to tell us that that was the <laughs> moment that okay. we grew up. But I don't know. It always felt a little bit nice to say that we're still a church plant because that could like explain whatever problems you were having.
1: Lots of grace for them, right?
2: Yeah. yeah you could like justify it. Like, yeah, yeah, we don't have any money. Yeah. It's because we're a church plant. It's fine. Like, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Okay. Okay. Anyway, sorry. Sorry about that. Continue. Leadership <laughs> journey.
3: Follow oh, the leadership journey. Yeah, yeah. So the question, What can you maybe repeat the question? I got distracted yeah. by Yeah,
1: gladly. I got distracted. You'll find that I don't have a co-host. I will distract myself in this conversation. <laughs> so, you know. Okay, so the leadership journey, like you are co-pastoring mm-hmm. and you did not start 12 years ago with a co-pastor model. So explain to us the evolution starting with 12 years ago and your structure as a church and let's, let let's, we'll have the theology conversation, but just bring us up to speed on what's the, what's the church structure and from it, from what it was to what it is today.
3: So 12 years ago, um, the founding pastor who was sent from Imago Day in Portland, he began the church here in Salt Lake and he began it um, as the lead pastor. He was the, Lead pastor and then alongside a management team. So he had a management team that was supporting him as he was establishing the community here in Salt Lake. And once, um, I think it was right as I moved here in 2014. So I think they were four years in when they um, installed their first elder. And that meant that he began to be supported outside of that management team by a board of elders um, that subsequently grew while Johnny and I were both on the team. And so the leadership structure was that um, the lead pastor liaised between elder board um, and staff and community. So it's kind of the middle um, hinge pin between,
1: hinge.
3: Yeah. yeah, kind of hinge. Like this is the stuff that's com- in the board meeting with the elders, and then these are the staff meetings, and then this is how we dialogue with the community. And in a lot of ways, and um, the lead pastor's role is to interpret, to be the interpreter of all of those spaces, and to try and keep that um, those spaces connected to one another. And then the vision, the vision comes predominantly from the lead pastor. So the lead pastor um, establishes the vision, uh, dreams up the vision, and then kind of communicates that vision to um, the elders and communicates that vision to the staff and communicates that vision to the community at large. And then we all kind of get on board with that vision and kind of execute it, embody it in the life of the community and then in the life of the city um, and so, and the structure there at the time was that um, both the lead pastor and the role of elder was specifically to be held by men. So that was the infrastructure, what in some ways, like what the leadership structure looked like when I arrived in 2014. And then as Johnny merged with us in 2015.
1: What's the management team? So you said elders and management team. What's, what's the difference between those two?
3: So the management team just acted as a interim board Okay. as the lead pastor was planting and didn't have the support system that he would have had with an elder board. So the the management team just from the church planting network acted as an interim board before the um, elders were installed. And then that kind of board role transitioned to the board of elders and away from the management team.
1: Okay, that's thank you. That's helpful. Okay, so that's then. Now, what are you today?
2: (laughs) Um, uh, So, so yes. From that transition, we go from a singular. We go from an all male singular lead model um, to what we would say is like a mutualist, um, often referred to like egalitarian. But I think it's important to say mutualist because it's beyond just women included, but to say how people are respected and how partnership and participation are valued. So we'd say we went to a mutualist and co-leadership model from that singular patriarchal structure that we had existed in before.
1: And, And this is interesting. I've not heard that term. So just quickly contrast for us again, mutualist versus egalitarian. Very familiar with that. Mutualist?
2: We, I don't, I'm not trying to like... If you use the word egalitarian, that's like a beautiful and powerful term and often evokes some of the same kind of um, connotations. But we were intentional about using the word mutual because we believed that you could be in an egalitarian system. That was one shift that needed to be made in our context to shift to the inclusion of women in all positions of leadership. But we Mm -hmm. believed you could move to that and still exist in a model that was deeply patriarchal in terms of the way it instantiated power. So still revolving around one central male linchpin and one central male embodiment of authority. Like the way power is used could still look patriarchal. So then to say mutual is to say, we actually want to, we want to pull back the layers a bit on what leadership looks like, and not just who's included, but who's included being an important part of that but that other embodiments of leadership could also be a part of that conversation as well. So it doesn't have to look like one model. So the mutual felt like it spoke to both inclusion of, of a different body and inclusion of a different kind of embodied leadership, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. I, I really appreciate how you put that. I'd be curious, Heather, to hear you talk about when, when Johnny says, the male embodiment of authority. What do you hear when he says that? And what has, what, what did you observe about that male embodiment of authority?
3: That sounds like a a loaded question. I'm I'm (laughs)
1: teeing you. I'm teeing you up friend. Like seriously, I just threw you the slowest softball I could possibly throw you. I want you to hit it out of the park.
3: So the question is, uh, what has my experience of male authority been like? Yeah. I mean, that can be
1: included. So Johnny used the term male embodiment of authority. I heard you mention that as well. I heard you, Heather, mention that when we had our pre-conversation. So like, what is, what is male embodiment of authority? What is that? What did that look like from your perspective? Mm -hmm. And then the doors open.
3: I think it would, if I were to describe it, it would be a sense of responsibility attached to a notion of authority um, that means that as a male who is in a lead position, it's kind of my job to have power over. So I have power over the staff or I have power over, or sometimes with the elders. I think maybe there would be a space where mutuality would be um, signal towards but the, the sense of authority and responsibility is located in me as the male mm-hmm. and because it's located in me um, there's a kind of submission that's needed or um, attuning that's needed or respect that is owed me um, regardless of proximity or relationality or trust, the authority itself owes me certain types of things because of the position that I hold. And so maybe that's how I would describe how male authority has been held. So, so
1: either of you talk to me then about, because you mentioned something that I have like was a new thought. Now that you've unpacked male embodiment of authority, you had said it can be egalitarian, but patriarchal.
2: Yeah. I think what is the expectation that is set upon everyone who is within the system of leadership. And so for example, we could have changed our position on women included in eldership to make it egalitarian. And we could have even maybe moved into a system in which Heather was enabled to be the lead pastor. But the question is, is when she gets into that role of being a lead pastor, what are the expectations? What are the metaphors of leadership? What are the narratives of leadership that are applied to her? And how is she expected to fulfill the leadership role? Mm -hmm. And often that is couched and covered in like a a male perspective or understanding of what leadership looks like, which is, I think Heather named some of those things like domination over. There's uh, high values on like certain kinds of authoritarianism, efficiency, certain kinds of male skills. Like I think the metaphors that I think about actually that we heard a lot during this process are, uh, uh, executive captain, uh, (laughs) like, like the, the, the thing, the thing an institution needs in order to be led well, especially led well in unstable territory is like the captain of the ship or an executive or a CEO. But with that brings so many other kind of like, I would argue male specific metaphors are then applied to, or, and, and by what male, I even mean like Western uh, last 500 years post enlightenment understanding of what it means to be a man uh, concepts that are applied then into the role of leadership. And things that are often considered more feminine, again, using those categories as they've kind of been assigned post enlightenment, so sure. things that tend to be more feminine, like uh, more subjective, more nurturing, more caring forms of leadership are subjugated. Like those can be kids pastors, those can be cares pastors, but there's never an imagination for that as like a lead pastor or on the team of lead pastors. Um, or it's, uh, maybe another way of illustrating this: I we use the APEST at Missio—the Apostle, uh, Prophet, Evangelist, Shepherd, uh, Teacher. To to like illustrate some of the times of the gift things that can make up a team, my APEST result is prophet and apostle, which looks like pretty traditional lead pastor giftings. Yeah, so it's actually pretty easy to imagine me in the lead pastor role. Uh, Heather, not to speak for you, but Heather's this shepherd and evangelist, which are often not gifts that are immediately put into the lead pastor role. And I think that illustrates a problem. Like, why is that not a role? Why are those not giftings? We can imagine leading the church. Like that, to me, it implies an embodiment of a set of metaphors that are exclusionary.
1: And look, at you, my friend Angela is like rocking you guys. She's loving it. So <laughs> so why do you think that is? I'd be curious, Heather. Why do you think that is? Why has why has the lead role been this kind of stereotype that has excluded other kinds of gift mixes?
3: Well I think it's the kind of imagination we have for what it means to be a leader um not just in a in the space that is church but also culturally like there's a kind of um i mean and I think we also see that politically mm. like there are kinds of instantiations of leadership that we we believe and 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 I think that comes i mean I think that comes from a lot of different there's a lot of different reasons for that. And I think whether that, whether the church has borrowed those, but I think even if you look in in the text all the way through Samuel and King's the whole time, there's this, we don't like, we don't like this notion of a um, priest. We want somebody that looks like the, the leadership that is the Pharaoh or the, So, I mean, it it isn't even constrained to, like, current times. Like, the sense of need even in the text declares that this is what we need and God kind of gives them over to that, but it doesn't go well. But it's the same picture there of what we believe, or as I would say Johnny is describing, as a kind of male leadership that dominates in particular kinds of ways.
1: So can I ask a devil's advocate question? So like you guys are a, you're a church, you at one point, sorry, Johnny, we're a church plant. <laughs> I think you have maybe matured on. So I don't know, just me, you know, the stereotype is I'm a church planter and the stereotype is I'm a former church planter. I need to say is that, uh, the church, especially like the mission focused church, it needs that like apostle, risk taker who can like see the horizon and see what could be and scan it for possibilities and build the team of people around taking this risk and launching out. And that has always been this assigned like a, a stereotype leader who is what you have both been describing is that, I mean, male embodiment of authority kind of like follow me, let's go do this. So like, are you saying that that kind of leadership is not needed for, you know, the, the complexities of navigating a post-Christian culture where like nothing's handed to us, right. As a church.
2: I, I, John, I think that's a great question. I, I really love like the Apest set. And I think I totally agree that there is so much room and space and need in the local church for apostolic or entrepreneurial leaders. Um, I think There is even space like, and you're exactly right, there's space in the church plant and there's space in the missional church, necessary space in the missional church for apostolic leaders. So I think that's right and true. Uh, I think what we have an opportunity to do in this conversation is to expand how we think about leadership teams, other roles within the leadership process, and what comes even after an apostolic leader shows up on the scene to begin and start new entrepreneurial works. And how does that apostolic leader do it because i think entrepreneurialism is beautiful yeah but how? how much does the apostolic leader get to dominate the local context yeah. the leaders and the volunteers that come with them because in our tradition again coming from a missional tradition which i love so deeply yeah. like the apostolic leader kind of got to do it the how they wanted to in order to to make the mission take root and i don't know that the spirit likes being coerced in that way for true mission. I think that there's there's a mutuality in terms of how we participate in the the spirits work and with others that a true apostolic leader would actually find to be a much more empowering kind of apostolic work. I
3: would say having worked with multiple apostolic kind of prophetic leaders, the how is really vital. I yes. mean, I think, yes. the, yeah. what Johnny's just talking about, you can have those strengths and those gifts and work mutually. And it may, it takes a lot more self-reflection. It takes a lot more deference. It takes a lot more listening and attuning both to the community and to the staff and to other. And But I think it, the big um, highlight there for me is like how you do it. Like it's not about those strengths and gifts and qualities being unnecessary um, but it's how then do you hold them in connection to others
1: yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah. So that's a good segue maybe for pick the story back up this has been really helpful I really wanted to kind of diagnose your reflections on why you've chosen to go in a different direction and we're still going to get to the theological but keep unpacking for us then how, where are you now? Um, in terms of how you structure your leadership, what does it look like? Co-pastoring.
2: So in 2019, we kind of mentioned this, our lead and founding pastor, uh, resigns from the role and takes a, a job somewhere else. And, when that happened, I, I think the best way to illustrate it is it kind of felt like a veil that had mm. been hiding some things got pulled back because he served as the intermediary between all these different or, like pieces of the organization. When he was gone and those pieces of the organization were forced to like see each other, we yeah. all realized like we had much, much more desperate understandings of the institution, vision, mm. theology, structure <laughs> than we imagined. And um, that led to... A real conflict uh, over the last two ish years uh, from 2019, 2020, and into 2021, like led to quite a bit of conflict. And that was very difficult, but I think was also the the like proving grounds for a new understanding of leadership and for a handful of new experiments that then began to make co leadership seem possible, uh, seem like really appealing. Also, like it was. It was like kind of doing these experiments in the midst of that conflict that pressed our theological understanding to new places, opened up some new ideas and gave us some new tools mm-hmm. so that we get to today and we have like a formal, you know, like about that. I just be like written into the bylaws, uh, possibility of co-leadership as like, which wasn't a thing before. So the, the Missio can be co-led by two or more senior pastors two
1: or more interesting Potentially. so yeah yeah so heather what is your role and and you know what are you specialize in with with the way that you're gifted so you said you said um shepherd evangelist so how does that show up in your role
3: well it's taken different iterations as we've kind of experimented with co-leadership so at first we just divided uh divided responsibilities equally okay so for a while i oversaw the building maintenance and those kinds of things and then oversaw management of staff um and then johnny and i shared the preaching load that we did and then a lot of pastoral counseling so i spend a lot of time with people so those were just going to let's split this thing up divide and conquer you know the this lead pastor is gone we need to keep the thing moving and then covid happened and so we shut down the church and then it just looked very different and so then our um, responsibility shifted with the pandemic and then I took a sabbatical and I took three months off and when I got back I wanted to have a season where I was just discerning like let me not immediately jump back into the things that I had been doing but yeah let me take six months to be attuning and discerning both to where I'm at after all of this turmoil and where the community's at and where Johnny and I are in terms of co-leading, and so I before I was preaching every other week and I was like, Johnny, I don't, I'm not really in the mood. (laughs) (laughs) I need a hot second, I don't know that I've got anything to say. Um, And so for him in that moment, I think he absorbed some more responsibilities, but again, it's in this mutual Context where we're talking all the time about what, what it is that we're both doing and why it is that we're doing what we're doing. So I would say for the last six months, Johnny has taken more tangible responsibilities as I've been discerning where the best spot is for me. And we have kind of sh- what it looks like to to help the community grow um, and heal and move in towards vision. And we have Sunday space and then we have second kind of circle spaces and then we have like everyday life and so a lot of my responsibilities now are directed towards um this kind of second circle and everyday life and the idea there being that it's very rare to have a lead pastor that only predominantly has a focus in those areas and isn't so much focused on the Sunday morning responsibilities and so we decided that we wanted to give that a try so that's the newest experiment
1: I I just love that you're experimenting. You sound like a church plant. No, you're not one. You sound like one and, and how you're, yeah, you're innovating, you're experimenting. I love that you had the space to discern. When you say second circle, what is that?
2: Uh, so our, we, we stole this concept from Dr. David Finch who wrote the book Faithful Presence. Um, okay. I did my doctorate with him. So I feel like I can steal things from him. Uh, but, <laughs> you paid uh, for the right, you paid for the I right to steal, the right things, to right. steal yes. things. Yeah. So it's yeah. not really, it's not stealing. I purchased this. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but Fitch has a, uh, what he calls like a three circle social ecclesiology to the church. Yeah. Um, and the first space is like, could often be considered your Sunday space. It's maybe like your most like closed, impersonal, your personalized, like intimate setting. Second space is maybe like a practice place. Like think house churches, dinners, um, that simplifies it more than I want to in this conversation, but it's the, we often joke that the first space is like a physical therapy appointment where you're like guided into healing. The second space is like a gym. So Heather then in that sense is like overseeing all second spaces. Or I think Mark Scandrett who did a, interview recent what that's called the, the, the Jesus dojo. So that's second yeah, space yeah. the dojo, the gym. It's a place where you're practicing all the yeah. things it looks like to be a disciple follower. Formation. Of Jesus. Yes. So that Heather, you could in some ways you could say it's like formation, second space pastor. And uh we I, I the way she said it I think is really helpful is so we wanted to co-leadership has presented a lot of different experiments. And experimenting like we use that language a lot and try to emphasize that it's like essential because we don't know what we're doing. And so then we continue to experiment, continue (laughs) to learn, continue to discover new things. And that kind of open handedness allows new possibilities to emerge. One of them being like we wanted, as a vision of a community, our ecclesiology to be more robust than Sunday's to be more missional, So then doing this experiments kind of enabled a new opportunity to say, like, what if we had a lead pastor who oversaw a a different part of the ecclesiological structuring of the of the community, the different social architecture? What might be possible if we really invested in that space in a different kind of way? Yeah,
1: that's great. And that book uh, Lee was asking in the chat is Faithful Presence uh, by Dave Fitch It's in the chat. And there's a link for those of you participating right now. Yeah, that's that's really back again. There, that's right. There we go. There we go. He gets his credit. Um, so that's, that's by the way, that is a great, those three circles are really helpful. I remember reading that a couple years ago. Theological. Oh, okay. First, before we move on to theologically, uh, I would love to hear Heather. I would love to hear you talk about what, what does Johnny do uh, as in his role and what, how do you see his gifts matching what he does?
3: Johnny, I would say at the moment his role is to oversee Sundays. So everything that happens on Sunday mornings, like that's what he does. But that what happens on a Sunday is birthed out of his apostolic gifting where where he missionally hopes us to be headed as a community. And so I would that's always done in dialogue, but I would say that that's his responsibility is to think about where we're headed and then to try and capture that in some very tangible ways, whether that's as he now oversees the staff, like what does that look like and lived out through the different things that they bring, whether it's kids curriculum or classes. Um, or whether it's um, dinners that we have, the, the, there's, a, there's a vision that we're moving towards that we would be joining God in the renewal of all things and that that would happen in our everyday lives. Amen. And so the content, um, a lot of the content that is produced comes from Donnie very very creative. And so it happens through his creativity and then his management of staff, that he would do that in a way that is mutual. So, that there's, he's partnering with the staff in producing some of this content. Um, and then, to be honest, it's just some of, at the moment, again, with him, he's doing a lot that is, I would say, maybe outside of his gifting, but he's very competent. So, his levels of competency outside of maybe his gift and his, he's got good skill sets when it comes to finances. Or, again, we have a building that we have for renters and he's managing that at the moment. So, guys just a jack
1: of all trades at the moment <laughs> well that's really helpful uh so practically are you both are you both i'm gonna use, I'm gonna use a music category you might want to call you can call me on it if you want but like are you both the boss do you both hire and fire if you need to that could be volunteers as well
2: like how does that work can you fire each other just curious we, that's funny. We make that joke all the time. Um, <laughs> like, the, like that Heather's the only person that could fire me. At a technical level, we have um, what we call a guiding team, which serves as, like the board of elders or board of directors on our, and they with the other like co-lead pastor would be the ones that would be responsible for disciplining another lead pastor. And then yes, Heather and I together together, are the I guess like management for staff in the community or like for like the staff and volunteer roles Um, and we would be responsible together for disciplining uh correcting but I even that like there's different like there is a way of doing that that exists within the kind of an old model and then there is seeing staff out of a mutualist understanding as like participants and partners that we get to empower and work with. So I think, yes, we are management, but uh, there's a different approach to that also in terms of like kind of a more mutualist approach to so how do we see staff, what are their roles, what are they doing and what is our role within them and with them also yeah
1: yeah i'm hearing that and i'm hearing i'm hearing i like this combination of mutuality and responsibility like both in your roles you have this mutuality but then you have you have things that you're each taking responsibility for because pragmatically i've been on teams before where we were we were collaborative but it it also really bogged it bogged things down often and we would we would be talking constantly. It's like, we felt like we were talking more than we were doing because we were collaborating and we were equals on the team, holding authority together. How do you guys do that? How do you like make decisions? Say, you know, do you have to talk about everything? What do you know? What do you uh, decide are the things that you practice mutuality in and where are the places that you take responsibility that would be higher than maybe the mutuality, but in a spirit of mutuality. Does that make sense?
2: Totally. I will say, this is the question that we've always gotten asked the most. It's a really good one. And it's the question also that when we were proposing this idea to our our former board because that's what we had a we had a pitch of former board of elders and all male board of elders, most of whom were executives (laughs) in business worlds. Like yeah. Like this is like like
1: right for them, right? It was like a mind blower.
2: Yes. And where's the the buck stop? Come on. I cannot tell you how many times that phrase was said to us. Where does the buck stop? Where's the buck Um, stop? You can't make a decision. So I'm not trying to say it's not it's a fair question. It's the one that I think we get wrestled with the most and I, and I guess there's, there's two things that I feel like are important to say is one, like we are willing, I feel like this is important to say, just theologically, we are willing to sacrifice efficiency for gospel mutuality. Um,
1: come on, come on, come like on. I, it, we know I that efficiency like, is more important than all yeah, that. Yeah,
2: right. <laughs> uh, like we're willing to do that. It's like maybe the first priority, mutuality trumps efficiency, listening okay. to one another trumps, um, moving the institution forward. Cause yeah. it's like we said at the beginning, how you do this determines what you get at the end of it. Like the means yeah. determine the ends. Yeah. Um, and so we're willing to sacrifice efficiency for mutuality. However, I don't know. And you should speak to this too. Like, I don't know that our experience has borne out that we often sacrifice efficiency. I think what actually happens is that because two people who have equal responsibility and equal authority are dividing responsibilities I would argue that more things just practically get done. And the question in terms of like practicalities, are you willing to defer to one another and trust another person in the areas that they have gifted, which is again, why we've relied on the APEST or other like gift identifying tools to say like Heather's more gifted here. And so I might have a read that's different than hers, but like, I'm going to practice mutual submission and submit and defer to her skills, her gifts, and her authority and trust that God's going to work through that. And the worst thing that happens is that she's wrong and we deal with it. Like, I mean, that's the worst thing that can happen. So I don't know. All that to say, like, we've not seen efficiency be sacrificed and the, the work is practicing deference and mutual submission, which feels very uh, Jesus-y to me.
3: Yeah. And I think- It's also related to the kind of relationship you have with experimentation and failure, like if you don't have a good relationship with experimentation and failure, this is probably going to create an enormous amount of anxiety.
1: Yes. Yeah.
3: <laughs> it's like, oh no, there's, there's the, it's a, it, there's lots of practices that we do. Like it is a practice of neutrality. It's a practice of deference. And if you don't practice these things, they are uncomfortable. And so the intentionality of practicing these things, like Johnny said, because we theologically see mutuality as more imperative than other things, like where the buck stops or efficiency. Then you get you get practiced in something, and the kinds of things I think that we got mirrored back that would be impossible, or it's like that's just going to slow things down, or people aren't going to know who to look to in our experience. Um, yeah, it's it's. And trust is built as you do something in a mutualist way, and so I, yeah, I think there's a kind of um, willingness that has to be present, um, or just do, or need to do some uh, your own work around why these kinds of things create such high levels of anxiety, like need for control, or need for particular kinds of outcomes, or need for not failing. And I think if anyone's a parent, you've had these practices anyway in your yes. everyday life. At home, and even if you're not a parent, I'm not like there's plenty of of ways that these things, um, we do this in everyday life anyway. It just needs to apply yeah. to the church,
1: yeah. I thought about parenting as I was like, well, we do this in parenting all the time. We have two, where's the buck stop? Well, <laughs> in a mutuality arrangement, yes. I can imagine that the ripples of this are so healthy in your church. If you both are practicing compare and contrast in gift and responsibility in a a way of mutuality, I can just imagine your community would ripple into that where they would step into like, I'm gifted in this way and I'm gifted in this way. And you have such a more of a like a kaleidoscope of gifts that are being talked about and highlighted in contrast to each other in mutuality. I can imagine that that would be really interesting. Can, can you say, can one of you say maybe Heather, can you say something about that briefly? And then Johnny, I want to hear you talk about agape and canonic theology that gave birth to this from a Jesus centered kind of perspective.
3: Yeah. I think I would say is that it's not always as comfortable for people um, I think it would be easy to idealize this and to be like oh yeah this means that people are unleashed and empowered and gifted and honestly it's sometimes it's the maybe the sense of power to and power with or empowerment is sometimes more difficult for people than being told. Yes.
1: It's um, scary. It can be.
3: It is. And so I think it requires patience and it requires um like helping other people to see that it's okay if this experiment doesn't go as we expected and we're still going to be here um, if it doesn't go as expected. And so the the ability to unleash your gift into doing this ministry or serving this population of people or having an experiment in terms of a conversation that you have with someone at work Like, we're holding kind of the sense of we don't always know the outcomes here. Like, we don't know Mm. what this is venturing into. And I think oftentimes when you have to take that responsibility for yourself, that's harder. When somebody else is communicating, oh, this is the thing that we're doing and this is why we're doing it. And like, the buck stops with me. Right. You know, you don't have to have any sense of buy in or responsibility or even partnership with the spirit in that moment. And so I would say that it's not it isn't to be idealized because it's also challenging and difficult and it requires a lot of patience and, mm. and kindness towards one another and, um, honest conversations when things don't, when mutuality isn't happening. And so, yeah, the hope is that people experience power to empower with that can be very intimidating.
1: Yeah. I think that's so well said. Mm-hmm. So can you, can you just give us a nutshell of how, a Jesus centered theology. We just talked about practitioner stuff and it was really helpful, but theologically how, how did this come into being for you?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. It is so shaped by Philippians two and the kenosis. I think like, if I think about like, what is the passage that describes what was challenging to us and unraveling to us in terms of our theology, was the philippians 2 passage and the the kenotic movement of christ and uh biblical scholar michael gorman argues that philippians mm-hmm. 2 should be argued that jesus's kenotic movement is not contradiction with his deity but in fact that the translation should be because jesus was god he condescended to the world below that it is the most an extreme manifestation of god's very character is to step down, to create space, to invite more. And so if that is true of who our God is, and Moltmann says that of the Trinity, that the triune relationship works because of perichoretic, self-giving, opening love, that there's a, a creation and movement and opening of the self for more love, then why would that not be true of our leadership practices? It was like, we wanted it to be true of our lives. We believe that it should be true of the way we do community. We believe that it's true of who our God is. And yet, for some reason, at least in the tradition that we came from, it was like, that's not true of our leadership. And even saying, like, Kenotic leadership, people were like, that can't be true. Like, this is the place. where you, <laughs> We know it doesn't work that way. Yeah, <laughs> and you're like, I, I just think... That is, faith people who believe that God resurrected from the dead, we should believe that there is more room in our leadership structure for a diversity of people than one single guy. And so it was that Philippians 2, kenotic, self-giving, spacious kind of work that Jesus seems to do everywhere, and that God seems to do everywhere, that so began, for, at least for me, to unravel how I thought about the, the kind of leadership that was in the church, and then, even to the question that you asked Heather before, like that it might actually create space for some other way of living in the church, if like leadership was doing something different that might embody a different story, a different theology that would then make possible a different imagination for our own lives and participation mm-hmm. in what God is doing. if God's always inviting us to participate that we see it, well maybe we might start to participate a bit more.
1: Mm. What would you add, Heather, that's been important to you from a theological infusion imagination of this?
3: I think as a woman who participated in systems where um, like mutuality wasn't um, expressed, there's a kind of identity that is diminished in those structures and systems that I think I, because I was treated with a great deal of respect and was given a lot of, agency still, I didn't understand um, fully like what the cost was on my, sen- on my, on my own sense of personhood. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't understand the cost. And I do not think that Philippians 2 means that the person who has less power is, is bearing the cost in that way. It seems to me that in Philippians 2, the one who is bearing the cost is the one that has the most power. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is rarely expressed in many contexts where the people who have the most privilege and power are the ones that are bearing the most cost. Mm-hmm. And so I think we should have structures and systems that try and build in where this mutuality happens and there's a little bit more cost that is borne by those who tend to see themselves as holding authority and power. Philippians 2 shows us that very vividly.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. This has been, yeah, this has been just enlightening and challenging. And I, I mean, I've, I personally have had like four, whoa, ah ahas. I need to think about that moment in here. So I just thank you for like stretching our thinking. So we're going to transition to some Q and a, and we have people who Angela's serving up some great questions that our participants have been sharing. So Jen McWilliams says, We'd love to know how they shepherd the congregation and sending like church donors to go from a 180 degree kind of shift from that patriarchal to mutuality. How did you shepherd the church through that? And how do you still have jobs? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah.
3: We finally hung on. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. yeah. But I think, and one, it's, uh, there was a m- multiple things that happened that I think were outside of our control that tipped um, towards being able to. The pandemic was one, and then two of the people who were applying for the lead pastor role withdrew at the same time, and so then it suddenly created opportunities for these kinds of structural changes to happen. And then a few of the people who were actually most of the elders one by one, decided to, to leave, which again created opportunities. Um, and then I, what I would say about donors or founding, um, subsequently with conversations with our sending church, they've also made a big theological chain and now um, have moved to being egalitarian. So I think it actually opened up multiple conversations that have meant um, shifts happening just outside of Missio. But, um, those would be a couple of things that I would say that made it possible. I don't know, Johnny, if you have.
2: Other things. Yeah. I think I, it's important. What Heather said at the beginning, there are some things that were outside of our control. And I, like, I, I entered this experiment uh, with not a very big view of the Holy Spirit. It's like a confession. And I left like a full on Pentecostal because uh, there's just things that I don't know would have happened unless the Spirit was unraveling something. Um, yes. And I think then our job, um, one of my mentors and uh, professors, like, he's a guy named Al Roxborough or Alan Roxborough, he would often say, You have to hold stability long enough for something new to be birthed. Yeah. And that's like really difficult. And there's a lot of tension there. And I feel like that was the best advice that we were given is like, can you hold the tension long enough? Yes. And you push on stuff and you you use, you pray and you, you like, you try to you like move things, but you're also trying to hold stability because there's real people who like call Missio home. So you're still doing the church work. Right, and there's there, even the board who we're fighting with at some level is real people who like have real hearts, and so you're trying to like hold the tension without being devoured in the process, long enough for some, like long enough to midwife some new thing into existence. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like that was the best advice that we were given for that two-year period of time. Is like hold the tension, midwife something, and let the spirit work. And I feel like. Uh, something did get birthed and is still being birthed but we're not I mean we're not out of it yet we're still dealing with that
3: yeah, and labor yeah. Is let's just be honest about that and what labor is painful birthing new yes diseases. that's oh, right <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah and
1: and why not do it in a pandemic you know what I mean oh my gosh yeah I mean perfect timing perfect timing <laughs> <laughs>
2: I guess the other thing to that uh, to that question is like the hard, this is a hard question too, because we've not always like people didn't transition with us always. Like some people who gave lots of money didn't come with us. Uh, and so there has been like sacrifices in terms of the budget and there has been sacrifices in terms of finances. Um, uh, lots of free in other places that I feel was worth it. But like the thing you named is a clear and present issue on the table that like, I don't like, you know, we've had to wrestle with and had to deal with losing at some level.
1: So I'd be curious, Sam Wheeler has a good question. Where do you see this Kenotic leadership? Where do you see it in Jesus? Interestingly enough. And where do you see it in the rest of the new Testament? As you've been doing your homework on this, like you pulled a leadership structure from a passage that's not passage about church leadership.
2: Uh, That's a good question. I mean, I think that that actually might be the way leadership was done throughout the, like the epistles as we're given descriptions. Uh, We're not Mm -hmm. given descriptions of like a singular lead pastor throughout the new Testament. Um, so I think that the actual it feels like to me the burden of proof more rests on like the more modern CEO driven leadership style to show me where that feels like that has mm-hmm. biblical precedence because it seems like mm-hmm. Paul establishes teams. It seems like the Jerusalem Council and acts as a team of mm-hmm. leaders that operate within mutuality. It seems that actually Paul submits in some ways to the Jerusalem Council to decide what mm-hmm. to do in terms of Gentile conversion and acceptance. So it seems to me that that often throughout the the, the church in Acts or the church of the New Testament and the apostles is navigating something that seems a bit more mutualist. Um, I think that, I think you see I do think you see some wrestles uh, like about who gets to be included in that. I think that's also yeah. what most of the New Testament letters are about: is how big and inclusive is this Jesus thing. But I think that I my argument would be actually mutualism as a church leadership is kind of the primary structure running throughout the New Testament church.
3: I would say we also see that in Philemon in how Paul um, addresses that situation. We also see it in Corinth and how he speaks. He comes across as very intense, but at the same time, there's a lot of deference that he's showing to and um, the Corinthian church. So it it there's a lot of mutual. Just wanted to add those two examples too.
1: And and I even go back to your apest, like apest itself, which is, you know, baked into, was it Ephesians or is it Corinthians? But in the list of the gifts, it's apest itself is, these are roles and functions offered to the church that are meant to be in a mutual, a mutuality, which leads to Scott McTaggart's question from artisan. He said, I'd be curious to know the size of your leadership team in church. And if you think, mutualistic apest leadership can be scaled or or does it work in more in smaller churches (laughs) that's a great mother's laughing so she's you must have heard this before
3: we've talked about this actually Mm
2: johnny and i so we're we're somewhere between you know COVID adjusted like five and 500 (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> well if they all showed up on the same day you know what i mean yeah, yeah we're yes. probably
2: you know like if you choose if you get the the drop down option when you're paying for something for a church it's like three to five hundred like yes, that's yes. that's what we like so yeah. somewhere in there um there's two lead pastors we're a staff of seven all together and then our guiding team or our board is um heather and i and currently four other lay leaders um, and we need to at least add another one soon um, to that team. And the the primary place that we've worked with AFEST is Heather and I. Um, I guess we worked it with Heather and I staff and then our guiding team. Like we've been trying to use that model in each of mm-hmm. those places mm-hmm. um, in order to structure the teams that are serving and leading the church. So like our guiding team or again, our, like our board, one of the criteria to be on that team to take the decision of making power out of our own hands so that we don't continue to choose people that are within our own relational circle, um, is like we don't have a teacher on the team and we need a teacher. And so the APES model becomes one of the, uh, tools to get people onto that group so that Mm -hmm. there is a plurality of gifts speaking to the issues that are guiding and leading the team. So that's one of the ways that we've tried to use it, Um, at the size that we are.
1: It's really interesting. So Peter says, how did Missio Day go about understanding and deconstructing male metaphors within leadership? In other words, how were metaphors assigned to a gender and what do you find mutualistic metaphors and practices? That is a good question, especially the, what are the mutualistic metaphors and practices?
3: Can you say the first part of that question again?
1: Yeah. So how, how did you go about understanding or deconstructing the male metaphor for leadership? So you had to broaden that, um, that metaphor for leadership, because you said that male embodiment of authority was kind of seared into people's minds uh, a bit. So, how did you help unlearn how did you help your community unlearn from that one mode of of leadership
3: i think we're in we're still in the practice of unlearning um and i think it's going to be ongoing like there's a there's going to be a constant unlearning and even just the perceptions that johnny and i often are fielding with folks is the perception of like what kind of role I'm in or what kind of role he's in or okay. what kind of conversations people want to have with me versus what kind of conversations people want to have with Johnny or okay. assumptions people are making about Johnny versus assumptions people are making about me and so mm-hmm. it's a real intentionality in all of those co- conversations to do that work of unlearning so that we're naming what those assumptions are and then communicating that those aren't the assumptions that we're living in or intending to live in Um, So I would say there's still a lot of unlearning. But again, I think when Johnny was in the middle of his course with Fitch, there was a couple of metaphors that really resonated with him that he then talked to me about. So I'd love, I don't know, Johnny, if you'd share those. So helpful.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think what what Heather said is right. Like, I think you discover the metaphors because when you step into them and try to do something different, they start to get revealed. So like Heather naturally reveals... A set of metaphors especially when she's trying to lead at like that position that's not been open to her and she's going to lead mm-hmm. it her way all of a sudden mm-hmm. the metaphor is like more revealed mm-hmm. or uh i think for me the, the the big moment that was revealing is like when when we were in our transition a lead pastor was trying to be hired and the language that was used to describe the lead pastor was really consistently the same it was like an executive male leader who could see the vision who could captain us forward who could drive us in certain directions and so those are all metaphors that when you sit with long enough you start to like i i think you have to start to question a bit like why do those metaphors always drive this conversation or why are they driving our conversation and then to your point about what are alternative metaphors i these are not ones that i've invented these come again from um, mostly from Alan Roxborough, uh, the metaphor that he uses that I found most helpful for pastoral ministry was midwife. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that you are joining the work of the spirit in a community to birth something new. Uh, and so then the leadership doesn't be, it's not about you. Like, that's the other thing, like, like the way that our previous instantiation of leadership driven, is so centered on the singular lead. And so midwifing then makes it about somebody else. Now I'm here to participate in the birthing oh stuff yeah. happening in the midst. R- Roxburgh has a few others. Another contextual theologian um, uh, who wrote a book called Doing Local Theology, I think, talks about a it, local Sed chefs. Mac? Yeah, sedmac talks about yeah. doing, like being like a local chef, which I also yeah. thought was a very beautiful metaphor like that the, the community brings all the ingredients of the meal and then mm. you get to work with it in a way that like, creates something for the table. Again, it's like it puts the power onto the whole community not just onto the clergy, not just onto the professional. And also we're making something yes. together. We're doing some new work together. So yes, local chef, midwife. Roxborough also likes detective of divinity, which I think is a bit <laughs> like ethereal, <laughs> but I like the idea of yeah. you're trying to pay attention to what God's doing yeah. in the community. Yeah, those. so I, contextual theologians were the, were the ones that brought the most amount of new helpful metaphors to our work, and those were some of them. Yeah.
1: Oh, that's so helpful. Um, Oh, this, this has just been so good, but I I just want to say thank you so much for leaning into this conversation with us. I I wish we had another hour. We could fill it easily. I think there's so much more (laughs) we could pull out, but thank you for what you've given us. It's been a gift and we just really appreciate. And I just want to invite everybody to just thank Johnny and Heather with hand waves and claps.
0: Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out JesusCollective.com where you can hear stories, find info about upcoming events and workshops, maybe even explore getting involved through partnership as a church or an individual leader. Listening is such an important part of our journey as an organization. So please feel free to reach out to us with your ideas and your feedback. Drop us a message on social media, or you can email us at connect at JesusCollective.com. Here's to keeping Jesus at the center.